This is section zero of Excerpts from a Bibliography of the Work of Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorne Clemens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Excerpts from a Bibliography of the Work of Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorne Clemens. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Read by John Greenman. Introductory Samuel Langhorne Clemens, who lived and wrote under the pseudonym Mark Twain, was born in Florida, Missouri, November 30, 1835, and died in Redding, Connecticut, April 21, 1910. This bibliography of his printed work is not the place for an extended resume of the literary value of his output. It is rather a catalogue to facilitate the researches of the many, present and future, interested in his writings. Little attempt will be made to distinguish between the individual characteristics of the various books or articles with regard to the quality of humor, moral teaching, interest, or probable value. Mark Twain has been variously regarded as merely an entertaining humorist and as a great and profound philosopher. His own point of view probably changed with the years as his mental horizon changed and widened. A preface to one of his early works states, I am not offering this work to the reader as either law or gospel upon any point, principle, or subject, but only as a trifle to occupy himself with when he has nothing to do and does not wish to whistle. Yet most of his very latest work was controversial and philosophical, and just before his death he wrote, I like myself best when I am serious. Personally, I regard most of his better-known works as Americana of the greatest value, as impossible to duplicate as the paintings of Remington depicted an age that has vanished. Those books portray the making of the nineteenth-century American, his whimsical humor and exaggeration, his roughness, his firmness, his ready sympathy, his strength, his weakness, from boyhood to old age. They are history, as the Dickens books are history, in the best sense of all. Mark Twain's literary production covered a period of practically five decades. His range of activities included newspaper, magazine, book, and speech. He lived in a dozen places, from Honolulu to Vienna. Europe, Canada, and the United States vied for the first publication of his work. These things together, with the immense volume of publication, render it practically impossible to make these lists technically complete. Yet the Twain lover will find here sufficient exact data for the broad founding of his collection. Such additional information and correction as may be necessary will but add zest to his pursuit. In these pages, after the usual fashion of bibliographies, most importance is given to the first printings in book form. No attempt will be made to be didactic or arbitrary. Facts will be stated as far as obtainable but some conclusions must necessarily remain matters of opinion. In search of information, I have examined almost every available source, libraries, private collections, 
and have interviewed numbers of publishers, printers, and book dealers. It must be taken into account that the bulk of Mark Twain's work was published before the date of international copyright, and his popularity made him the victim of pirates of every degree. Whatever the author's feelings on the subject may have been, these pirated works are of as much importance to the collector as those regularly copyrighted. Naturally, the printing dates of these pirated works can be found in no such regular channels as government records. Even the government reports of the copyright editions have been incomplete. Many books filed in government offices at time of printing have been lost. Of some of the early books, publishers, printers, binders, illustrators, all lie in their graves, and Mr. Clemens himself never had the collector's interest in remarking the fine differences between editions so necessary to state exactly in a bibliography. Neither author nor publishers felt the importance of preserving the first copies from the press. Often it has been the cataloger's only resource to search for a presentation volume, containing a written date within a few days of the presumable first printing, and then compare page by page with an acknowledged second edition in the same form to discover and tabulate variances. It will be only by accident or by most unremitting search that the exact dates of printing of many pirated editions in Canada and England will become known. No arbitrary rules have been attempted in this bibliography for the acceptance or rejection of freak publications, no fine distinctions drawn between cloth, leather, or paper-bound books, pamphlets, annuals, etc. Each publication is listed for its own worth, and the distinctions must remain somewhat a matter of personal opinion. The largest point at issue for the collector who does not wish to be omnivorous in his purchases lies between the English and American editions. In most cases the Canadian publications can be eliminated as firsts because the English editions preceded them. Many bibliophiles claim with authority that the collector should choose for a preferential set those books published in the author's own country even if some of the items have been previously issued in another country. In the Twain case, nearly all the books were first issued in England, some pirated, but most by arrangement for purposes of copyright protection before the passage of the present act. Twain's first book, The Jumping Frog, was published in authorized form by Routledge in England some months after the American appearance. One John Camden Houghton, seeing possibilities in the new author, not only reprinted that material, but pounced upon Innocence Abroad, and had it upon the English market long before the Routledge authorized edition. Next, the voracious Mr. Houghton seized the Memoranda from the Galaxy magazine and put it into book form. It is probable that the author had been most concerned with the work of production and the returns from the home market kept the wolf far from the door, but word from across the sea made him take notice of the increasing circulation of his work there without corresponding gain to himself. Here is his own account of the steps he took for self-protection. The English courts have held that 
under certain circumstances prior publication in Great Britain will give an author copyright in England, whatever his nationality may be. You are an American. If you want to copyright a book here at home, what must you do? This. You must get your title page printed on a piece of paper, enclose it to the Librarian of Congress, apply to him in writing for a copyright, send him a cash fee. That is what you personally have to do. The rest is with your publisher. What do you have to do to get the same book copyrighted in England? You are hampered by no bothers, no details of any kind, whatever. When you send your manuscript to your English publisher, you tell him the date appointed for the book to issue here and trust him to bring it out there a day ahead. Isn't that simple enough? No letter to any official, no title page to any official, no fee to anybody. And yet that book has a copyright on it which the Charleston earthquake couldn't unsettle. Previous publication in Great Britain of an American book secures perfect copyright. Whether his awakening to the value of the English market was due to his trip to England in 1872 or his trip was due to his awakening is uncertain. The latter is indicated by newly written prefaces dated Hartford, July 1872, to an authorized edition of Innocents Abroad, printed in London. In this he states, Any American likes to see the work of his hands achieve a friendly reception in the mother country, and it is but natural, natural too, that he should prize its kindly reception there above the same compliment extended by any other people than his own. Our kindred blood and our common language, our kindred religion and political liberty, make us feel nearer to England than to other nations, and render us more desirous of standing well there than with foreign nationalities that are foreign to us in all particulars. So without any false modesty or consciousness of impropriety, I confess to a desire that Englishmen should read my book. Something a little less altruistic than the above seems to have been actuating him, however, for the device of previous publication was invoked to protect the just-written roughing it, and a wordy war took place between Twain and Houghton through the columns of the Spectator, and soon Houghton ceased to be a factor in the printing of new material. This practice of previous publication forces the collector, who does not wish parallel sets, to a choice between the actual first printings from abroad and the American first printings, with the addition, of course, of the items not printed in America. Many American collectors up to the present date have thought necessary to include in their sets 
London copies of The Prince and the Pauper and Huckleberry Finn because of the predating of those items, not having the information that those selected books were merely on a par with twenty other books published a few days previous to the American issue for copyright reasons, and not a whit more important to the collection. It is almost impossible to draw the line between the permanent and the fugitive, the valuable and the trivial, in the immense volume of written, spoken, and anecdotal Twain material. Most authors sit them down in their studies to produce any work of value. It has to be considered, written and rewritten, and is then given to the public in so-called permanent form. Much of Mark Twain's work, of course, was in the carefully wrought form, yet his literary product was an inborn method of thought, a point of view, a philosophy of life, which was just as apt to flash at full value in a hasty note to an acquaintance as in the most studied production. Several of his speeches are included in his collected works. Most of his shorter pieces were contributions to newspapers. Therefore it is the intention in this bibliography to list all books containing speeches, letters, or anecdotes of any literary interest. I cannot guarantee the authorship of all this material attributed to Twain, but if there is a doubt as to authenticity, I shall endeavor to voice it. Mr. Clemens has set his stamp of approval on such writings as appear in his collected works. The rest is Twainiana, to be put to such tests as anyone may be able to apply. It may be stated here, for the benefit of the prospective collector, that his search for definite first editions of Mark Twain is apt to be far more difficult, and therefore far more attractive, than has popularly been supposed. It is true that even the early publication of the Twain books in the first form and first years of printing reached great numbers, but the old-time printers did not run off large editions from duplicate plates on many presses. A single press worked slowly. After a few hundred were printed, the sheets were inspected for errors and changes made in the plates it may safely be asserted that no first printing by the american publishing company ever ran more than a few thousand copies without some change in the text or pictures often the change was made after the printing of a very few copies allowing for loss and mutilation it is certain that almost all definite first editions now exist to the number of only four or five hundred some of them such as Tom Sawyer and A Tramp Abroad, must be reckoned in tens, not hundreds. The mechanics of bibliographical presentation for this author's works have been altered slightly from the usual en masse style by the great volume and varied character of his output. I have previously mentioned the real literary value of what might, in another author, be merely fugitive, namely speeches, letters, anecdotes. Therefore I have divided, as justly as possible, the lists of books into four divisions. First, as most important, will be given those books and pamphlets of which Mr. Clemens is either author-in-chief or assigned contributor. Next will be given those containing one or more speeches, then those containing letters, 
and lastly, as least authentic, the anecdotal books. As stated before, book form, for the purposes of this bibliography, makes no distinctions as to cloth, leather, or paper-bound books, pamphlets, and even a one-sheet publication being included. Original covers are described wherever possible, and in deference to the prevalent taste of collectors, the cloth or paper cover is given the preference over the leather. In this connection it must be admitted that the description given of the covers and styles of the earlier English editions cannot be complete. A residence in England, and a study for years of the subject there, would be necessary to give all the variations, and that has been denied me. Each separate list is given in chronological order, although in deference to a preference for American editions, those are described first, except where the English editions antedate them more than the usual few days. Some few Canadian editions are given, but most of them remain undescribed for reasons previously given. I must state here my indebtedness to Mr. Luther Livingston, the bibliographical expert, for personal assistance and the example set by his work. I can do no better than adapt here a passage from his bibliography of Longfellow, the method of which I have followed in great measure. Page numbers included within parentheses indicate only that pages are unnumbered, especially in the case of text pages. Generally all are numbered, excepting only the first. Whether the first and the last of the series are in parentheses, there are often numbered pages between. Blank pages, it will be noticed, are, with occasionally an exception, not mentioned. But having at hand a copy of the book described, it will be easy to discover whether or not it is perfect. And that is the use and end of a collation. I may add that the wording of title pages and covers as given here is standardized, that is, the typographical aspect of the originals is so varied as to the use of caps and lower case that they are repeated here uniformly in lower case, capitalizing only the important words. If possible, blank leaves belonging to signatures at front of books are listed and accounted in implied page numbering, but single blank pages are not noted separately. Periods are sometimes added to finish quotations or collations when those periods do not actually exist in the original text. Perhaps explanation of the use of parenthesis is in order. When the words within the parentheses are capitalized, the first letters of the main words, it indicates that the parentheses and the words exist on the original page. When the words within the parentheses are entirely in lower case, it indicates that I am describing some feature in my own words as rule or ornament. Similar distinctions as to the capitalized first letters of words hold good in other cases. For instance, title, contents, list of illustrations, introductory, indicates that title and introductory are my own words used to describe a page not actually so headed, and contents and list of illustrations are literally transcribed. Yet, after the colon following collation, 
I capitalized the first word without regard to the foregoing rule. I am also indebted for assistance to Mr. James Tufts, Mr. Peter Cadley, Mrs. Ralph W. Ashcroft, and many other individuals, not to mention almost the entire rare-book profession in the United States. End of section 00. Introductory.